Okay, so tonight, as I said, we'll be in 2 Samuel. Tonight we'll be in 2 Samuel chapter 3 and 4, verse by verse. And David has now become established as the king of Judah. Saul is dead. He died in the battle with the Philistines. David is king of the tribe of Judah, which is the tribe he came from. The 11 other tribes are following Ishabeth, a son of Saul. But Ishabeth's not really the power behind that. It's Abner, the general of Israel, who's the power upholding Ishabeth, as so often we know with, mili- with political leaders, whoever has the military, you know, they're the ones who get to stay in power. And so it was in this case. So it's in that background where there was, after the two kingdoms were established and they're in conflict, there was the hand-to-hand combat and the whole situation where uh, jo- jo- Joab's brother chased the Abner, and then he killed him, and all this stuff, and then they said, that's enough for the day, and so we had conflict, it's just war, conflict, strife, unpleasant stuff, and from that we come forward with chapter 3, verse 1. Now, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, but David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. Sons were born to David in Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon of Ahinom, the Jezreelite. His second, Chiliab, by Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. The third, Absalom, the son of Makkah, the daughter of Tamai, king of Geshur. The fourth, Anadonijah, the son of Haggith. The fifth, Sheftiah, the son of Abital. And the sixth, Ethereum, by David's wife, Eglah. These were born to David in Hebron. Here we see a couple things that, first of all, in that first verse, we see that Saul's kingdom, Saul's dead. And we know that the, the king of Israel was never meant to be from the tribe of Benjamin, where Saul was from, but ultimately from the tribe of Judah, as prophesied by Jacob over a thousand years before there in Genesis 49. It was always going to be the tribe of Judah. And since God anointed David through the hand of Samuel the prophet a couple decades before, maybe 15, 10, 15 years before, then when Saul died in battle, then the, those leaders of Judah came out and they anointed David publicly. So it went from the private anointing as a teenager in his father's house to a public anointing with the one tribe that he's from. And they, he sought the Lord as we studied in detail and topically on Saturday, where God called him to go up to Hebron. And there his kingdom over the tribe of Judah was established. And it was a seven and a half years. And we talked about like little by little and not being so focused on that the whole dream hasn't come to pass, but realizing the journey, the process is part of the whole preparation for getting to the destination and to embrace that and know that God's in control. And so here we start off right away at the first verse that we realize the Holy Spirit gives us the narrative of what was inevitable, that the kingdom of Saul is getting weaker and weaker, the house of Saul, and the house of David is getting stronger and stronger. And that's just the way it works because Saul's household really represents those things that God couldn't bless, the striving and the efforts of men trying to maintain something that God was no longer in, whereas the kingdom of David represented the things of the Spirit, the things that were promised, the Word of God, and the things that will surely come to pass. So in the case of the kingdom of Saul, you have to have ambitious men and women striving to uphold something that is dying. But in the case of David, all you need to do is to be faithful to the Lord and trust in the Lord and know he'll bring it to pass. And isn't that the much better choice, right? We've all learned when you're striving, in our, we're striving in our flesh, in our agenda, in our plans to manufacture and make things happen, 
when God's not in it and we're trying to keep something alive that God's already killed. For example, like relationships with men and women sometimes when it's just over and it's done, that some people just, just can't let go or a job. The Lord's saying, That's, this, this door is closed and you want to keep that job, you want to maintain that because even though it's dysfunctional, you prefer a known dysfunction over the greater thing that God has. And it's, it's human nature to try and hold on to things. And it's even like with parents sometimes, with adult children, to not be able to let them go. you got to let them go, and they got to fly out, and they got to figure it out. Because otherwise it's going to be the Holiday Inn commercial, and they're living in your basement when they're 40. And that doesn't look good for anybody, right? So, you know, it's like, you just got to know when, you just got to let things go. That's what we have to do. But for the house of Saul, it's hard to let it go because Ishabod still has a remnant of an inheritance. He has some power. Abner's his strength with the military. They've got wealth. They're controlling something the size of Southern California, whereas David in the tribe of Judah is controlling something the size of northern Orange County. So it's hard to let go of things that guarantee you food and protection and assets and wealth because that's also involved in this story. But in the case of David, it is so much easier to just trust in the Lord. When you read the first book of Psalms, those 41 chapters of the first book of Psalms, they're all David Psalms. And you see, these are, this is young David Psalms, most of them. And you just seem like, trust in the Lord. You've delivered me. We can trust in you. By the strength of my God, I can, you know, jump over the high wall and all these things. And you realize that the 13 plus years that he was fleeing for his life from Saul, as arduous and difficult as it was, he learned to trust in the Lord. And God placed him as king of Judah, one out of 12 tribes. There's 11 over here. And he could strive to try and make it happen. Or you just like, hey, be faithful to what God's given you and let God make you stronger and stronger. And he was going to make them weaker and weaker. However, he's going to finish it off. That's his business. However, he's going to bring to pass what was promised to him through the prophet Samuel years before. That's what he's going to do. But really, if you're focused on building Judah and being faithful as the king of Judah, you don't have time to be fighting the 11 tribes, and what's left of Saul's dying kingdom. And you really see that, because in the end, by doing nothing except staying in the moment and being faithful to the Lord day to day, David is getting stronger and stronger and moving toward what God has prepared him for. And Ishabeth and Abner in this, this kingdom of flesh and strife and pride of men is getting weaker and weaker and weaker. And it's like Gamaliel said in the book of Acts, if it's of the Lord, who wants to fight against it? And if it's not of the Lord, it'll just come to nothing. And when you're younger, you don't see it so much that way. But when you get older, you realize through trial and error, like, we should just let that alone. It would have just died a natural death, and then we, we executed it, and then we got blamed for it, and it would have just died anyways. You know what I'm saying? It's just better to let it, let God do what he's going to do with the 11 tribes that get weaker and weaker, that are manufactured, sustained, and upheld by the flesh, and let God work in you the things of the Spirit where you can get stronger and stronger, moving toward the promises of God, forward, onward, and upward, as it says in Philippians. So David learned to trust in God in those back in 1 Samuel, and clearly he's trusting the Lord at this point. Now, he does have multiple wives, and they were told, the Israelites were told that when they had kings not to multiply wives. I don't think, I can only speculate, but it's worth speculating, just because David had a wife that he loved. He had Saul's daughter as a wife. And this was his wife. And his wife was taken from him and given to another man. We'll see that in this chapter in just a moment. So there's always like a plan A and an ideal. And it can be in-laws. It can be 
strife and in marriage and all sorts of things, but one can never underestimate how in-laws sometimes wreck the marriage of people that are married. And if you live long enough, you realize that does happen. And in this case, the in-laws wreck the marriage. So by default, David lost his first wife, not from infidelity or from biblical reasons. He lost his first wife because the man that gave her to him, his father-in-law, took her from him and gave her to another man. So in all the time he's running for his life with everything else going on, he's got to think about his wife sleeping with another man and not being with him, which is quite grievous in the human experience for those who unfortunately know. Is not Genesis 2 in David's love life in marriage, right? We catch that? So David was stumbled for sure. David was stumbled by his father-in-law in his first marriage. And he ends up with these multiple wives. Now, he could have, I mentioned this when we talked about Abigail. She's amazing. She's the one we know the most about, even more so than even Bathsheba. We know the most about her of all the wives that David had. He multiplied wives, which kings often do, and that usually causes problems, which it did. And in this list of these wives and these sons that came from them, the firstborn, Amnon, he's trouble. The third one, Absalom, he's really trouble. And Adonijah is big-time trouble. These are men that came from different wives who strive to be kings and do things. And in the end, all the strife and unrest, you could even say civil unrest, a divided house caused so many problems down the road. When they're little kids and half-brothers, not so much problems. But when they grew up and became like high school seniors, then here we go. And like men who go to war when they're 18, 19, 20, here we go. And they were ambitious and sought power. I will point out to you, Abigail's son, interestingly enough, is never really mentioned again. Which is kind of nice because these sons are all mentioned for bad things. So again, it's just one more thing about Abigail, who we focused on a couple of weeks ago, that the legacy of her life, she, she saved her knucklehead husband's life when David was coming. She saved all the men of her husband's employment who were going to be executed by David. She kept David from embarrassing himself, humiliating himself, and avenging himself. And her impact on him was so profound that he took her as wife after God struck down her first husband, Nabal. But as I mentioned before, in most monarchical systems, the king can never marry a widow. That's not going to happen. So we don't really know who David really loved because obviously you can't serve two masters. You love one and hate the other. It's impossible for you to love two people in a uh, romantic relationship. It's just, it, it might seem possible at a time, but it's, it's, God's made it impossible. So when you have multiple wives, like people that have married, remarried, 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 have kids from all the marriages, you already know it doesn't work and it costs you a lot of money. But in the end, your heart can only be yoked to one. And where your heart is, your treasure will be. And clearly we know as time goes on that the woman he should have never gotten, Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, that's the one David ultimately really yoked himself to. And her son Solomon, he grieved for the son they lost. And then Solomon, through her, became the great King Solomon that we all know. But I have this thought that at least in all these women, we can be sure one of the women around David's life was a Proverbs 31 woman. And that was Abigail. And even if she wasn't the apple of his eye and the affection of his romance, she certainly had his respect. I'm quite certain of that. This woman, whether he was ever intimate with her, well, she had a child with him, so he certainly was. But like where his heart was, 
we can know this much. She was a wise woman. She had his back. And I'm sure she had a good influence on him. And if nothing else, we know that her son, biblically, did not cause the same type of problems as the other sons that came from the other women in the palace. So props to Abigail yet again for the legacy of her life. And remember, she offered to be the maidservant of everybody in the palace. What an amazing woman. And I get the feeling when all these guys are fighting, killing each other, and all this chaos is going on, I get the feeling that Chiliab, when, when David would see the sons, he'd be like, oh, hey, what's up, Chiliab? Because he's not this, he, he's, he, he's the son that didn't cause you grief. You didn't have to go bail him out of Santa Ana jail or something, right? You know what I'm talking about, something like that. He's, 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 he wasn't that guy. So praise the Lord. But in the end, trust in God. That first verse, you trust in God. Now, verse 6, we read on. This is where it starts to really pick up steam. Now it was so while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David that Abner was strengthening his hold on the house of Saul. And Saul had a concubine, so that's one of the women, and it's like his harem or whatever, whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of um, Ayah. So Ishabeth said to Abner, why have you gone into my father's concubine? Sexual intimacy relationship. Abner became very angry at the words of Ishabeth and said, Am I a dog's head that, you, that belongs to Judah? Today I show loyalty to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers, to his friends, and I have not delivered you into the hand of David. And you charge me today with fault concerning this woman? May God do so to Abner, and more also if I do not do for David, as the Lord has sworn to him to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And he... That is, Ishabeth could answer Abner not another word because he feared him. These things are inevitable when you have men in power or women in power who are not spirit-led, spirit-filled, and obeying the Lord and the things of the Lord. They bring themselves into contrast to the Lord, into opposition to the Lord. As when Jesus struck down Saul on the road to Damascus before he was Paul the Apostle, he said, it's hard to kick against the goads. And when you're resisting and fighting the Lord, you're just fighting the Lord, it, 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 it creates tension and agitation for everyone around you. Abner clearly was the man of power in the palace of Ishabeth for the 11 tribes to the north. And by taking this woman to be his wife, it would be historically with monarchs a sign of saying, I'm your new king, if you remember... <laughs> Absalom's going to take all of David's concubines and have intimacy with them before all of Israel. And it's, it's, a, it's a power control thing. And so the perception certainly would have been here, and we'll see it again even in another situation in the, in the Davidic family line where the concubine is a big deal. The idea to, to get the woman that was going to be with the king but wasn't and make her yours makes you the king. That's the mindset. And so that would have been the perception in this story contextually with Abner and Rizpah. And Ishaboth would, of course, felt threatened by that. But who knows? Maybe just Abner wanted to be with the woman and, and have a wife, right? At any rate, it was, it was a thing that put in motion other things. It was the offense... And again, it's Abner's pride or whatever. It's like, 
He's basically saying, I could have delivered you to Judah a long time ago. You're a punk. You're nothing. And you're coming to me over this. If I wanted to usurp you, I could have. I could have delivered you to David already. That's basically what he's saying. Like, dude, I'm working for you. We're playing this game. And you're going to give me grief over this woman? See, when you get involved in romantic relationships, the fire heats up, doesn't it? You get a little more mojo going. There's a little more fire in the furnace. It's one thing for Abner to cut down Joab's brother in the field of battle. It's another one you're messing with him and his woman and how he wants to spend his personal life. Well, it's getting, that's it. Such a flashpoint for Abner, it's going to cost him his life, and it's going to cost his concubine, her man. It's going to cost Ishaboth his life. It's just a total implosion that follows through from these events right here in the palace this day. And, of course, Ishaboth couldn't say anything more because he realized that moment the only reason he's in power is because Abner is enabling him to be in power. By the way, in the Russian-Ukrainian conflict, the strongest military units of Russia never left Moscow because they were protecting Putin in the palace. That's what kings do. He who controls the nukes, controls the best units and the best weapons, stays in control. Just worth noting, there's nothing new under the sun. Now, Abner says something very profound here. As the Lord, he says, may God do so to me, verse 9, may God do so to Abner and more also if I do not do for David as the Lord has sworn to him. See, now we're, we're seeing what's in Abner's heart. All along, all along, seven and a half years or close to it, all along Abner's playing this game with Ishaboth, the tribes of the north, hanging out with Rizpah, his woman, and all along in the recess of his heart, don't miss this, there's a powerful lesson for us. In the recess of his heart, he knows exactly what the will of God is. Because from his own heart, he speaks it right here. When he's mad enough and worked up enough that his whole little kingdom that he's set up is going to, he's just in his pride and his, oh, he just snaps. And we all know, because out of the abundance of a heart, does a man or woman speak, especially under fire. And he says what he knew all along. David is supposed to be the king. David has prom- God has promised David to be the king. So now he's admitting by his own words that he has been resisting the will of God for David to be the king. It's hard to kick against the goats. He, from his own mouth, is saying that he knows it's the plan of God for David to be the king, that he and Ishtabeth and all these people that are empowering him are playing this charade that is on the clock and ultimately is doomed by the Lord to not come to pass. And at this point, Adam's like, you know what? Enough of this. Enough of this. We're done playing this game with Ishabeth. It's now, we're going to turn this all over to David. And so he realizes, well, he speaks what he knows is true, but now he's motivated to get back at Ishabeth. But whatever's motivating him, he is now doing the correct thing. He is putting in action the next things that unify the 11 tribes, the incompleteness of the ultimate plan that God has for David, which brings up a really good point. Pastor Chuck Smith used to say this a lot. It's not that people don't know what the right thing to do is. They just aren't willing to do it. And you learn in ministry in 34 years of being a pastor, I've sat with people who know exactly that they're in sin, that the sin is destructive to them, to people affected by them, and they will agree with you that it is wrong, 
but they're not willing to turn from what is wrong. Now, there's other people who will twist the story over and over to live with their conscience and their mind in sin to justify themselves, sin, the flesh, wickedness, and condemn what's right, obedience, and what's true and noble. But then even so, when it all comes crumbling down, they'll confess what we knew all along, that they always knew what the right thing was to do. They just weren't willing to do it. So often people say they need extra attention and care uh, for, to get through certain things. More often than not, it just comes down to the will. In the book of Daniel, when Daniel's Babylon, it was just simple. It said Daniel purposed in his heart not to defile himself. That's not a great power retreat on walking in purity or anything like that. It just says Daniel purposed in his heart. And we all know when we purpose in our heart, that we're going to go get this dream or we're moving on. And once it's purpose in our heart, we're moving on and we're getting after it. Obedience is rarely a mystery or a complex thing to understand. But it is, it does require humility and brokenness, which are two things that go against our flesh, our pride, the world, and the devil, all trying to destroy us. Abner lived his life, the last seven and a half years of his life, playing a charade, using the power that he had to live a cushy life while his kingdom got weaker and weaker with Ishabeth, and he wasted it. And when he finally did the right thing, it was too late, and in the end, he would perish at the hands of wicked men in the time of peace, He lost it all. He didn't get to keep the girl. He didn't get to keep his life. He didn't get to keep his wealth. He lost it all. How different it might have been if seven and a half years later he just said, David is the anointed one. Ishabeth, David is a merciful man. Look how he responded to your father's death and to Jonathan's death. He'll be good to us. He'll let us eat at the table. He'll bless us. He'll give us lands to till. It'll be a good life. Let's all just think this through and put ourselves at the mercy of David. And they would have found mercy, and they would have been blessed. But instead, they played this silly game, and they all die. It's a powerful lesson. There's no time to waste playing silly games with the Lord because of our pride and flesh. It is much better to simply, as hard as it is, to do the right thing and obey the Lord and know that's the path that prospers. Like David says in Psalm 1, the man or woman who's delights himself in the law of the Lord, they flourish like a tree by the river. But the wicked are not so, because they, they walk this way, then they stand this way, and then they sit in the counsel of the ungodly, and that's where they perish. See, you walk with the evil, then you stand with the evil, and you sit down and break bread with evil. And that's where your journey ends. And they're blown away like chaff. But the righteous are not so. How different it might have been for Abner. He might have gotten the girl. He could have worked for David. He could, man, it could have been so different. It never, it's never good to fight the Lord. Verse 12. Then Abner sent messengers on his behalf to David, saying, Whose is the land? Saying also, Make your covenant with me, and indeed my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel to you. He promised it because he could do it. And David said, Good, I will make a covenant with you, Abner. But one thing I require of you, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. 
So David sent messengers to Ishabeth, Saul's son. So now David's communicating directly with Ishabeth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife, Michael, whom I betrothed to myself for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, the dowry. And Ishabeth sent and took her from her husband, because now Ishabeth has to do whatever David says, of course, and sent and uh, brought her from her husband, from Paltiel, the son of Laish. Then her husband went along with her to Bahurim, weeping behind her. So Abner said to him, Go return. And he returned. Oh, this is another unpleasant type of story, but look, David's the man now. He's talking directly with Ishabeth, the terms of surrender. It's like MacArthur with the, you know, they're in Tokyo Bay. Like, when you, when you win, you have the terms. You hold the high ground. And he has the terms of surrender. I, you know, I, I don't quite understand why David was so insistent to get his first wife back when we just read about all of his other wives. But who can know? Because this goes back to, like, first love kind of stuff, right? We're talking, like, high school senior. We're talking college level. That first woman, he loved this woman. This is probably the woman, obviously, he's probably intimately, sexually for the first time with. This is that woman, all those first things. And when he fled for his life from her dad, she lied to her dad about what David did. Then her dad gave her to another man. That marriage would never be recognized by God. Especially because David wasn't unfaithful and David didn't. He had with other wives after, we would think, after this happened. In either case, he was forbidden to see his wife. She was given to another man. So this brings us to the other man, this guy. This guy's pathetic. He's hard to, you feel bad for him. Paul Thiel. This guy, and of course, think about this. Saul's the king. So if you marry his daughter, even if you're the second husband that marries his daughter, Saul's the most powerful man in the kingdom. So it's an upgrade for him. He's nobody if he doesn't marry her. Like, who was he? He married up. And now he's super powerful. He's the son-in-law of the king. In fact, one might say he supplanted David, right? Because David was the husband. David was the son-in-law of the king. Now he's the son-in-law of the king. This woman was never for him. Therefore, all that he shared with this woman would never be blessed on the same level that this woman shared with her first husband, David. Ah, the chaos that Saul called this cause is so far-reaching. I've always felt sorry for this guy. But he built a house that God could never bless. He built a family that God could never bless. And the day of reckoning was inevitable where David would call for his first wife. And it had to hang over this man's personal life. It had to hang over his marriage. It had to hang over their dinner time, their intimacy, and everything else. David is now king of Judah in the south for seven and a half years, and sooner or later, he's going to come looking for his wife, and I'm the man with his wife. So actually, he's getting let off the hook pretty good. Adam's like, just beat it. You know, Adam, like, he'll gut you like that. No matter how heartbroken and lovesick you are because you're going to lose this woman and what you, the thing you fear the most come to pass and you brought on yourself, and you're like, please, please. And when Adam was like, hey, beat it. Like, you, get, you only get one of those where he just pulls it out. Like, I'm going to tell you a second time. It's a sad end for a relationship that could never be blessed.
Let me say that again. Now, there's relationships that can be blessed that have a, a not a good start, but have a great ending. Like, once you bring the Lord into it, it can get blessed right away. Like, you bring the blessings on it. We understand that. But this kind of relationship could, could not be blessed. I don't know, like, you think, could David have just, like, let her off the hook and said, you know what, it's all good? I mean, he probably could have. It's, oh, man, it's a telenovela. It's a K-drama. It's complicated. It's a soap opera. It's complicated. And we're just getting started. It's arduous. What a scene, though. Listen. When you have the world, the flesh, and the devil on the part of man, it's lose, 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 lose. You notice this? There's no win-win in any of this chapter. It's lose-lose. Everyone's a loser because it's the flesh and it's pride. Everyone's a loser. Whenever the flesh and the pride are at work, everyone is a loser. But when it's the spirit, trust in the Lord, winner, winner, chicken dinner. They're all losers. Verse 17, now Abner communicated with the elders of Israel saying, in times past, you were seeking for David to be king over you. Now then do it. For the Lord has spoken to David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and the hand of their enemies. And Abner also spoke in the hearing of Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin. Then Abner also went to speak in the hearing of David in Hebron. And all seemed good to Israel. And the whole house of Benjamin, it's, it's looking really good right now. Verse 20, So Abner and 20 men with him came to David at Hebron, and David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. Then Abner said to David, I will arise and go, gather all Israel to my lord, my lord the king that they may make a covenant with you and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away and he went in peace. You know, David is so awesome at this point. He's not vindictive, certainly with Abner. He's not bitter. See, the, the, the people that walk the high road in a good sense, you talk about the high road, you take the high road when you let things go. When you're able to show mercy and you're able to forgive, you're really... Abraham Lincoln said that if you can make your enemy your, the best way to lose an enemy is to make him your friend. And when you can let things go, and Abner, instead of being your enemy, can become your friend, so instead of exclusive, he's one less person you have to execute, because we've seen so many people executed, why not make him your friend and bring his assets and his skill set to your military, because you don't want to fight each other, you want to fight the Philistines. Let's do that. And, you know, this table, this scene, it says, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And this just reminds me, it's such a beautiful thing when people who have worked against us for years finally admit they're in the wrong and they want to make peace, that we let them make peace and we throw them a feast. Because that's the high road and that's the road that God blesses. That's the honorable. Well, Psalm 23 says it anyways. You, you anoint my head in the table, on table in the presence of my enemies. Isn't that what God did for David when he made the feast for Abner? Three months before, David's the leader of one tribe in the south. Abner's the power behind 11 tribes. And now Abner is in the place of humility and of one of like submission, you know. And David's gracious with him. Let's have a feast. And what does it say? They went in peace. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall inherit the earth. When we are dispositioned for peace and reconciliation, 
when we are dispositioned to look for the best and see the best and encourage the best in other people, we're going to do far more better than if we're looking for conflict and to nitpick and tear apart and critique every little thing in everybody else's life. It's so much better to have the covenant of love, find the place of reconciliation, restoration, and have peace. And that's why the Bible says, as much as up to you, live peaceably with all men. But we do know some people will never live peaceably with you and I because of our faith in Jesus alone. And some people will never live peacefully with you or me for different reasons because of our family background, our ethnicity, our gender, our employment, and all these other things. But as much as up to us, let us make peace. And the high road and the winners of all happy endings and all the stories of human history of all cultures are the ones who forgive their enemies and have a feast with them and send them away in peace. And that's what Jesus did even on the cross. Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. That's who we want to be. Life is too short. <laughs> Supper is so much better when everyone's like, yeah, my brother, my brother. Shalom, shalom, shalom. It's so much better than guys pulling out their knives and hacking each other, you know, at a, at a poolside. It's just so much better. Verse 22. At that moment, the servants of David and Joab came from a raid. Okay, so here comes Joab. Remember, Abner killed Joab's brother back in chapter 2. And he's, uh, he had, so he's coming Abner was not with David in Hebron. Okay, so at that moment, the servants of David and Joab came from a raid and brought much spoil with them. Hey, Joab makes money. Joab produces income and wealth. Joab beats the bad dudes down. He's a bad dude. If it's hockey, he's the enforcer. He's that guy. But Abner was not with David in Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the troops that were with him had come, they took Joab, saying, Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king, and he sent him away, and he has gone in peace. Then Joab, uh, he's gone away in peace. And then Joab came to the king and said, what have you done? Look, Abner came to you. Why is it that you sent him away and he is already gone? Surely you realize that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you, to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you're doing. And when Joab had gone from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner who brought him back from the well of Sirah. Now realize Joab is the commander of David's army. Abner was the commander of Saul's army. So he's, who's going to be the top general? commander-in-chief. But David did not know it. Now when Abner had returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside to the gate to speak with him privately, and there he stabbed him in the stomach, so they died for the blood of Ashiel, his brother. Afterward, when David heard of it, he said, my kingdom and I are guiltless before the Lord forever, the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. Let it rest on the head of Joab and all of his father's house, and let there never fail to be in the house of Joab one who has a discharge or is a leper or leans on a staff or falls by the sword who has lack of bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had killed their brother Ashiel at Gibeon in the battle. Let me just point this out. This is very important. We'll get this in a greater application later on in 2 Samuel. But when Ashiel was killed by Abner, it was in combat. It was war, where people are killing each other in war. When Joab killed Abner, it was in the time of peace. There's a big difference. In fact, the Bible draws that distinction. And that's the key. Ashiel, of course, pursued Abner, and Abner said, turn around, go after someone. I'm telling you, turn around. 
and he killed him in his own self-defense. But it was the great sin of Job as he shed the blood of war in the time of peace. And the Holy Spirit tells us that later on in these stories that are connected. Verse 31, Then David said to Joab, And to all the people who were with him, tear your clothes, gird yourselves with sackcloth, and mourn for Abner. And King David followed the coffin. So they buried Abner in Hebron. And the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. And the king sang a lament over Abner and said, so he's singing again like like he sang over Saul and Jonathan. Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, nor your feet put in fetters. As a man falls before the wicked men, before wicked men, so you fell." Then all the people wept over him again. Then all the people came to persuade David to eat food while it was still day. And David took an oath saying, God do so to me and more also if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. Now all the people took note of it and it pleased them since whatever the king did pleased all the people. For all the people in all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's intent to kill Abner the son of Ner. Then the king said to his servants, do you not know that a prince, a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I am weak today though anointed king. And these men, the sons of Zariah, are too harsh for me. The Lord shall repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. You know, in verse 34 in his song, he says, as a man falls before wicked men, so you fell. What a sad ending. And yet I got to thinking about it. Every Christian that's ever been persecuted and martyred for their faith are people that fell before wicked men. Did you realize that? Like, I don't want, none of us want to die. Who, who in this room wants to fall before wicked men? I don't want that to be my ending. I don't want my ending to be like fall before wicked men, to have, control, to have them have control of my life and take my life. Like, I was like, oh, I read that. I was like, oh, what a terrible song. Why are you singing? Well, David always expressed himself in songs. But it was just like, it was a tragedy. But then I thought, well, you know, every single believer that's died for their faith like John and Betty Stam in, in China when they had to hide their baby and they went up the hill and the, the communists came and got them and executed them in front of the village and slit their necks, they fell before evil men. I got to thinking, a lot of human history is people falling before evil men, men and women. Women raped and murdered, right? Like, that's, you fall before evil men. I got thinking, so many people have died before evil men. And the comfort that I find in that is that there's perfect justice in eternity and that in the book of Revelation, the martyrs cry out, how long, O Lord, before you avenge the blood, the blood, avenge the blood of your people? And it really never is about this life. And while God would never sanction wicked or be wicked, he'll show in eternity for those who have faith that he's greater than the wickedness of evil men. That is for sure. Now, the next chapter is just a few short verses and has one application, so we're going to read chapter 4. When Saul's son heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost heart, and all Israel was troubled. So Ishabeth's like, oh my goodness, Abner's dead. This is really bad. This is really bad. Verse 2. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of troops. The name of one was Banna, and the name of the other, Rechab, the sons of Rimmon, the Berathite of the children of Benjamin, for Beeroth was also part of Benjamin because the Berethites fled to Gittim and have been sojourners there until this day. Jonathan, Saul's son, so that would be Saul, uh, Saul's grandson, had a son who was lame in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up 
and fled. And it happened as she made haste to flee that he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. He, of course, is famous for his good relationship with David later on. Verse 5. Then the sons of Rimmon of the Berethite, Rechab and Benah, set out and came at about the heat of the day to the house of Ishabeth, who was lying on his bed at noon. And they came there all the way into the house as though to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. And then Rechab and Benaiah's brother escaped. For when they came into the house, he was lying on his bed in his bedroom, and they struck him and killed him. They beheaded him and took his head and were all night escaping through the plain. And then they brought the head of Ishabeth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishabeth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. And the Lord has avenged my lord, the king, this day of Saul and his descendants. <laughs> I mean, you would think these guys would have got the memo or read it on Facebook. Don't show up with David claiming to have done something good for David when you take out somebody from the house of Saul. Remember the Malachite in chapter 1? Whether he fabricated the story or he closed the deal, he shows up with the crown of Saul thing, and there's a reward to say, yeah, Saul's dead. Like, how could these guys not know that? They, they're so shallow and surfacey that they didn't do their homework. You need, you need to know. Like, I mean, before you, 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 before you go in and kill your master and decapitate him and take his head to David, you should have a pretty good sense the odds are good that he's going to like that and reward you for it. All you had to do is do a little bit of research to realize this will be a bad ending. But evil and ignorant men often do not do their homework. They just do evil and ignorant things and then face the consequences for it when it catches up to them. Listen, we all know, don't show up to David thinking you're going to get a reward for this kind of stuff. You should, you should just Google Wikipedia. Read about how David was with Saul in the cave when he cut his robe. Read about how David was when he took Saul's spear and gave it back to him. These guys. Now, I'm sure there's an application there, but they, they just had, they just, no, they just, they had it all wrong. They have no understanding whatsoever. The heart of the Lord, the heart of David, anybody or anything. These guys, they're just evil evil. But David answered Rechab and Bana in verse 9, his brother, the sons of Rimmon, the Beharite, and they said to him, and he said to them, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all adversity, when someone told me, saying, look, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good news, I arrested him and had him executed in Ziglag, the one who thought it would give him, I would give reward for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous person in his own house on his bed? Therefore, shall I not require his blood at the hand of you and remove you from the earth? So David commanded young men, and they executed them, cut off their hands and feet, and they hanged them by the pool of Hebron. But they took the head of Ishabeth and buried it in the tomb of Abner in Hebron. So they buried Ishabeth's head with respect and honors in the tomb of Abner, with military honors, like at Arlington or something. But these two guys, they cut off their hands and feet and hung them to put fear in every single citizen in the United 12 tribes of Israel. Don't think that David thinks like the Philistines. Don't think that's the kind of king you have here. This king does not reward evil. So don't do evil things as reward for it. These men were cold-blooded murderers. That's what they were. That's what these men did. And they did it to a man who trusted them at the highest level. 
Man, David's not messing around. When the righteous reign, it's good with the people. But when the evil reign, it's bad with the righteous. That's what the Proverbs say. And David is establishing like a new head coach, like a new boss, like a new president, a new prime minister, a new queen, that this kind of evil will not be allowed in this kingdom because God will never honor it or bless it. And God help us to have people in this country who establish the same kind of righteousness with the laws of the land for good that we will not allow evil to flourish in this land. But alas, whether it flourishes or not, we can still be the Ruths, the Deborahs, the Marys, the Elizabeths, the Davids, the Jonathans, the Gideons. We can be those people. There's a lot of violence and blood in these two chapters. There's a lot of violence and blood in our land, too, and on planet Earth at all times. Now, we close with this pleasant thought about David as he gives testimony. You know, we get those little tracks like someone's testimony. David's track says this, As the Lord lives, who's redeemed my life from all adversity. Think about this. All that he's been through from the time he grew to graduate high school the battle to fight Goliath, the battle to, to get the foreskins of the Philistines for the dowry for his wife, the, the battle of running from his, his father-in-law, uh, the showbread with the priest, all that stuff, fiending madness, the, his men ready to kill him, chasing down the Amalekites, coming back to Ziggler, everything's burnt out. He becomes king, but only one of the 12 tribes. All that he's been through, he's seasoned. He's seasoned in life. And he can say it all that he's been through that the Lord has redeemed his life and all of it. So what a good reminder to all of us tonight before we go our way to be reminded that no temptation has overtaken us but such is common to man. And God who is faithful provide a way of escape that we may be able to endure. And as Paul said to the Romans that all things do work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose and being conformed to the express image of his son. And this is the plan And if we have faith, establishing our hearts for a saving faith, and if we walk by faith, looking unto Jesus, and as we seek the Lord, and we seek first his kingdom and righteousness, and we don't let worry rob us of all the things that God's intended for us, and we stay in the moment with the Lord, and we obey the Lord, and we go forward with the Lord, and we we, we see the adversities, we see the obstacles and the trials and the tribulations as opportunities for God to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to him, we will come through those things. If we cling to the Lord, we will come through those things and we'll be a a better version of you as a woman, a better version of you as a man, a better version of who we're meant to be. We will come through those things because the fiery trial, Job said, is to refine us like pure gold. And that will come forth better from the adversities, whether they're self-inflicted or brought upon us by other people or just in general being a human being on planet Earth in the time we live it. That the adversities transform us and they, they draw us close to the Lord and they're meant to take us deeper in the Lord. And what can be more beautiful to reach the age of 40, which is where David's at now, and just say, drama in the household, these different things. Michael's there also. He's just like, you know what? As the Lord lives, let me tell you something right now, young men who are about to be executed. The Lord has delivered me from every adversity and he will deliver me from every adversity and you can check the book of Psalms to hear me sing about it as well. So W.D. yet again reminded that the Lord will deliver us from every adversity. Looking into Jesus, the author and finisher 
of our faith.